Welcome back to Fantastic Voyage, a podcast about David Bowie. I'm Jesse. And I am John. You can find us on Twitter at Bowie Podcast. And if you're so inclined, we ask that you leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. We'll appreciate it dearly. Yes, indeed. We appreciate the ones we've got already. Uh, it looks good. It looks good on our podcast profile. I haven't had a bad one yet. So. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to that first uh, <laughs> that first bad review. That hopefully still gives us you know two stars or something. Uh, yeah, today we are talking about Aladdin Sane, 1973 album on RCA Records by David Bowie, uh, released in April. So he's been kind of busy between Ziggy and now and Aladdin Sane. He's been touring the album uh, to some big crowds, some small crowds still. He's been in England. He's been, I think, in other parts of Europe as well. But it was the second leg of the Ziggy tour, the second of several legs of the Ziggy tour, that he started to get some inspiration to write songs about Ziggy being in America, kind of. I think it's kind of what he's called it. Uh, yeah, he calls this, it's Ziggy Goes to America. Goes to the America. One that, yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, not only did he write this album, but he also wrote two very significant songs between Ziggy and Aladdin Sane. Uh, one of them would be All the Young Dudes, which was given to Mott the Hoople to kind of save their band from, I don't know, from quitting, from demise or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, John, I'm Only Dancing, which was a pretty big single for him, so... Kept busy in between. When he also completed Lou Reed, Transformer, and Iggy Pop and the Stooges, Raw Power. Raw Power, right. Two of the best albums of all time, just, yeah. just for good measure. You've got that really cool, uh, it's like a re-release that has both the Bowie mix and the Iggy yes. mix. Yes, I, uh, I do prefer the Iggy mix, it's just louder, just seems like more obnoxious, just seems like that's the more way that Raw Iggy... Power. Yeah, exactly, yeah. but I mean, I, I like both, so I'm glad that I have both of them. I, w- I would like to A-B those one day. Maybe we'll have to, when we're not getting together to do a Bowie podcast. We'll we can maybe to... even do bonus episodes for these albums that he's produced. Cause... Hey, there's an idea. Yeah. yeah. That's something, yeah, we'll have to keep in mind. Um, yeah, so Bowie is now writing, uh, while on tour, uh, an album that would go on to be, well, I think it's one of the most glam albums that he did it it might be like the definition of glam rock this album there's a lot of odes to you know past music whether it's like the cabaret type stuff or 50s doo-wop and and rock and roll and glam is kind of just reimagining that but in a glamorous way with you know it's like putting lipstick on it kind of yeah giving it a modern twist or maybe even a futuristic twist yeah, it's weird because he sometimes like he'll he'll go back to the '50s, but then this album also has a a futuristic scope to it. So it's like taking a step back and taking a, a step forward at the same time. He does it a lot throughout his career, and he does it again on this album. It's kind of neat when it, whenever he does that. And I kind of, you know, when you when we talk about the yeah going maybe switching styles a little bit, I kind of can break this album down into two groups or maybe even three groups. Um, of styles, it, it's kind of like like Dylan's time out of mind. How there's uh, there's like the rock and roll kind of stuff, and then there's the slow kind of heart wrenching ballads. You know, yeah. Uh, this one, like the songs Aladdin Sane, Time, and Lady Grinning Soul, kind of live in a universe. And then like Watch That Man, Cracked Actor, Gene Genie, Spend the Night Together, are kind of in another universe. Uh, and then like 
I, I kind of put Drive-In Saturday and Prettiest Star on their own as like the 50s doo-wop ones, but they, they maybe fit more so in with the rock and roll kind of ones. It's just an earlier version of rock and roll maybe. Yeah. But they kind of are nice little collections. Like I, I used to kind of think it, the album wasn't as cohesive as other Bowie albums because there was that divide. But I think it is brought together because it is still glam. It's a take. It's just glam from different eras. It's a take on twenties old music and then like fifties, like oldies kind of music. And I guess even like the songs that maybe aren't the same sonically, they do have sort of the same dark undertones to them, maybe from a thematic standpoint. So even when the songs sound differently, they kind of are still from the same universe. Right. Yeah. This might be the perfect time to segue into uh, the introduction of a new musician to Bowie's camp. Uh, Somebody that is possibly the most influential on his work, uh, definitely for this album and for the future of Bowie's music right up to almost the end. Uh, And that's Mike Garson, the the avant-garde jazz pianist who definitely... Uh, reshapes Bowie's sound for Aladdin Sane. Absolutely. I mean, he was well-versed in jazz, classical, pop, gospel, pretty much everything but rock. Now, Bowie liked that because he loved blending different types of styles of music with rock and roll, and that's one of the huge distinctions between this record and the last one is that Ronson was strictly a rock and roll pianist, and he was the pretty much the only guy playing piano in the last album. Yeah. Garson now comes in and, and he's everything in between and it shows all the sort of unusual jazz textures give this album more of I guess to me it's like a theatrical feel it's it's a lot more adventurous and a lot more avant-garde and it, it totally reshapes as you said the sound of this record especially when compared to the last one and I think it was just the natural place for the Ziggy character to to go it's okay Ziggy's gonna go into left field now it's not like Ziggy is for as you know as dark as that album is. It is kind of a straightforward you know rock and roll album, uh, and of course there's influences of other music on it uh, throughout the entire album. But this one takes on just something a bit more. It's when you listen to this album, it's it's just got more flavor to it than than Ziggy. I'm not saying it's better than Ziggy. Uh, I, I'm saying that it's it's got something that Ziggy doesn't have though. It's almost like this album was painted on like a 3D canvas and Ziggy was painted on a two-dimensional <laughs> yeah, canvas. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in, in a way. And, and yeah. not, not to use that as a knock against the it movie, is, but we obviously yeah. both raved about that last record, but there, there's a bit more, like it's a bit more adventurous, this one. Yeah. So, yeah, Garson's now in the fold uh, where he will remain for a, a few years. Uh, he, I think he's on everything from here to Young Americans. And then as Bowie collaborators do, they, they kind of go away for a while, whether I'm not exactly sure how that happened. I, you know, I read somewhere a long time ago, or I heard somewhere a long time ago that at one point Bowie said that he wants Gar- he wanted Garson to be his piano player for the next 40 years or something. I, I can't remember if that was before the, the hiatus or after. Uh, I, I should have maybe <laughs> tried to dig a bit more to find that, but he, at least he brought him back, uh, you know, in the nineties, uh, I think it was black tie, white noise era. And I mean, he's, he's all over outside and, and things going forward. Uh, so yeah, he's going to be another longtime collaborator of Bowie's and he, uh, he starts this one off 
with a bang on on side one uh where you know right away like this is oh <laughs> this the second track you go okay yeah. he's got a new piano player and this guy's pretty good I love the the story too of how he got in the group. Uh, so I guess he was kind of he wasn't really well known. Like he was doing clubs for as little as like five dollars a night or something like that before he got this gig. But apparently he was recommended to to Bowie by a, a mutual friend. I, I can't remember the name, but he wound up uh, Garson wound up auditioning to Ronson, and apparently he played changes. For like eight oh, yeah. seconds, I, yeah, and then and then that, got yeah. the gig. Ronson just said you're hired because <laughs> he was able to you know read the sheet music on the spot. But not only was he able to just like you know read the music, he also added his sort of jazzy flourishes as he went. So they went this this is the guy. It didn't take them long to figure it out. Well, and Garson isn't just a good jazz piano player, uh, but he also is kind of like a good free jazz piano player, which was is something else entirely. I think like. He, he he pushes the, the the boundaries and he goes outside the box uh and I, you know the way that Bowie was working I don't think he had much time to figure out how he was going to do it and maybe that played well into his style like I'm not exactly sure but it was just a perfect marriage I think of you know something pushing the boundaries that's what Bowie likes to do that's what Garson can do and obviously like to do is we're going to get into on some of the specific tracks uh, on this episode. Just a absolutely great. Uh, it's like a match made in heaven, as they say. Yeah, he's not yet just some ordinary jazz pianist. I mean, he was rumored to have practiced like eight hours a day for ten years. <laughs> and he he also had lessons with Herbie Hancock and Bill oh, Evans. Cool. Oh, cool. Like, oh, I mean, wow. Oh, and Bill. Some yeah. heavyweights, right? Yeah. So He's well decorated by the time he lands here, and uh, as you were alluding to, it most certainly shows. Should we get into Watch That Man? Yeah. All right, let's drop the needle. So unlike the previous album, where we get a slow fade into an apocalyptic demise, (laughs) this one starts off with a a bang. It's It's a rock and roll song. Uh, very much cut from the same cloth as the Rolling Stones. Let's get that out of the way. Yeah. Uh, as of much of this album, but yeah, the, this one in yeah. in particular. Um, to keep on the Garson uh, train, I like how towards the end of this song, you get just a little bit of that kind of off the beaten path playing, which kind of is a sneak peek into the next track. You know, it's just a, it's just yeah. a, there's a little instrumental break. Uh, in in the outro, and yeah, I love how it's like, oh, like what's this? Like if you're putting it on for the first time, you'd go, well, that's you can just tell that's not Ronson anymore, or that's not Wakeman. Yeah, like for the first half or whatever of the song, you probably would be able to, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because he does kind of, it just, just sounds like a Stone song, like you said, it's almost like it's Nicky Hopkins, the Stones player playing the piano, right. and it sounds like it would have been in Ronson's wheelhouse until it gets to the end, like you said, it's like, oh, what was that? That was something. That's something new. Yeah, that's something interesting. Uh, yeah, his Bowie's vocal is buried uh, in the mix. Not buried, but it, it's very low, which is it gives it that lo-fi kind of XL on Main Street sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronson apparently is triple tracked, so he's playing. It's three Ronson guitars playing the the lead riffs, so it just gives it that extra kind of wall of sound, like the Phil Spector esque style of creating something bigger by just yeah. not turning it up or adding you know three or four distortion boxes. It's just playing it more. Yeah. 
I think they did turn the other instruments up as well, too. But yeah, they definitely did do the mm-hmm. triple track of the guitars or whatever you want to call it. It's actually kind of funny. I heard that RCA asked Ken Scott to send a different mix to them because they thought, well, we can't hear Bowie. This isn't good. But when they heard the alternate mix with the vocals pushed forward a bit more and when they were able to compare the two, they said, oh, no, you were, you were right the first time. But let's keep this one as loud as possible. And it kind of works. It's a good tone setter for, for what this album's about to be. Good on whoever RCA like conceded it and said okay like sure that's that works yeah. you, you'd think it would just be like okay thank you and then mm-hmm. you know pressed you know how many million copies later uh I mean million copies over historical not well, not right away how much did this sell do you well, do you know I I know that this had an advance um. It had advance orders of 150,000 copies, which hadn't been done since, like, the Beatles. Wow. And so that also means that this album was, like, certified gold before it even hit the shelf. So I guess they wanted to make sure they were putting the right songs, though, because they Bowie was... I mean, this is the first record that Bowie made when he was a star, right? right. And it, it kind of fits into that whole thing where, like, DeFreeze was building Bowie by spending. You know, it was yeah. like, you spend big, you you get big, so that makes sense that it kind of, they also, that strategy was also in the pressing yeah, of, totally. the, of the record. I don't know how many uh, sales this album has gotten over time, but I do know that it had the, the 150,000 advanced copies and that right. it also went number one. It's his first number one album. Right. Yeah. So back to watch that man. Uh, yeah. So this is, he's depicting like a party. Uh, apparently it was like a New York Dolls after show or something in, in New York that he, he went to a party and he was kind of describing the, the evening's events, maybe. I, I kind of, and maybe it's the influences of, of songs like Time or Lady Grinning Soul, but I view it as like a Roaring Twenties party. I, I picture like a, like a masquerade ball or something. I, I don't know why, but I've always kind of, that's the visual I get from this from this song. I do think of it as more as just like him on tour and okay. partying just because I think yeah. that's kind of what, like you said, inspired, I guess it was a New York, a New York dolls party, but I think it does fit into kind of what you're alluding to the rest of the album, because it's kind of like a decadent party. It's kind of chaotic. It's kind of, it's kind of wild, right? There's I, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. I picture like a Gatsby party, like a party okay, at yeah. Gatsby's no, like, I can yeah. see that too. Well, it's, We've, this is we've been talking about this for this entire show. There's a million different interpretations for yeah. every song. So. And Gatsby is on his hundred book list. I think it is anyway. Anyway, this is almost like a, it's kind of like a passing of the rock and roll torch. You know, the Stones are kind of on their way out. Uh, they're about to hit a bit of a slump. Uh, Goat's Head Soup for them comes out after this, and then it's only rock and roll. Pretty underwhelming releases from from the rock heavyweights. Uh, not as much a, of a spark there, but it's funny that we are bringing that up because totally unrelated. Like we weren't thinking this. You were over uh, was it a week ago or something like that? Oh, and we just happened to put it's only rock and roll on. Yeah, <laughs> and, but we ended up talking about goat's head soup. Yeah, <laughs> it's just really weird. Anyway, that's that's funny. But yeah, I guess the, so. There was you know those albums from the Stones were a little underwhelming. Uh, and there, there wasn't maybe much of a, a spark there, but I mean, there, there's sparks here on this track and, and on this album, and there, there's lightning bolts and, and everything in between. I think this is very much Bowie kind of taking the torch from them and going, "Okay, I, I'm the Rock King now. You guys yeah. are, you know, yeah. you guys are gonna have to take a, a back seat for a little while." Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great song. It's something that he played live uh, quite a bit on the Ziggy tour. Uh, I don't have the stats in front of me for 
post-Ziggy tour. But I was actually just listening to the to the live version on the Ziggy motion picture, and oh man, it's it's so good. Yeah, I love that <laughs> cool down with with the piano at the end. Kind of a long outro, which is something that a lot of these songs have. have you, do you notice that? A lot of these songs have very long outros. Time has a very long outro. Yeah, but you know what? That's the one. That and, and Grinning Soul are kind of, it fits. There's Some of the rock and roll songs have very, very long outros. Uh, this is one of them. Maybe not as much as some of the others, but. Good tone setter and. I guess the, the a good tone setter at the end of this song as well, which leads into the next one, right? Because it's kind of, it comes down for a little bit and it kind of, it's a nice segue into the next one, which I guess we'll, we'll get into now. Aladdin Sane, uh, the title track. Aladdin Sane, 1913 to 1938 to 1970. Question mark. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the, the, yeah, the back cover of this album has a lot of cool things happening. That's one of them. Uh, also the, I guess the, the settings of each song or where he got the inspiration to write each of them is, is next to each track. So for watch that man, it was New York for this one. It says, I don't know how to pronounce it. Ellenus. It's, it's the name of the boat that he was on uh, when he was coming back from America. Cause he had aerophobia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which fear, I think fear of flying. Fear of flying. Yeah. yeah. So he took, yeah, he, he, got on board a, a ship and came back and uh, he wrote this song while he was en route to, to Europe from the first leg of the Ziggy tour. His fear of flying is, is really fascinating. It is, like it, yeah. It's, I mean, it has all kinds of, I guess maybe we'll, we'll have to talk about that. I mean, it was sometime in the summer of 72, right? He went on a vacation to Cyprus with Angie and Trevor and, and Woody. And I guess on the way back, they entered some sort of like an electric storm and actually had lightning hit the wings of the plane. That would do it for me too, uh, temporarily at least. <laughs> Apparently it was like one of those moments where like everybody on board thought like, well, this is it, like we're going to die. Okay, like, alternate and... reality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've, yeah, that's a yeah. theme of our show. And I guess Bowie in particular was the most shaken up and I guess his dad had recently passed away with pneumonia in what was that, about 1969. Yeah. He hated flying as well and, and he would appear to Bowie in dreams, I guess, after this and warn him not to fly. I mean, that's good enough reason... Uh, as any I've heard of to not want to fly. I mean, yeah. those dreams and that experience. Uh, but the fear of flying pays dividends. Uh, I mean, for one, DeFries like to market Bowie as like this mysterious eccentric figure. So traveling via cruise ship, which he did here, I mean, that, that was looked at as like extraordinary and luxurious, right? Other rock stars are traveling by private jet. Bowie's traveling like on the Titanic. But <laughs> it's also cool too, because when they traveled back to England from the US, I'm guessing the rest of the band probably got back home in a matter of hours, right? Like, what, what was a flight back home to England? Like, five hours? Yeah. Uh, well, maybe a bit more, but yeah. So Bowie's left on that ship for about a week with nothing but, but time on his hands, and that winds up giving him a pretty large window to to lounge about and, and seek inspiration for songs, and he, he winds up writing this one while sailing, uh, one of the finer moments on this record, if not the finest. Now, this is a different song for Bowie. It, it's it's a jazz song, really. I, I've always kind of seen it as a jazz song, kind of maybe a bit different, but yeah, it was. This was a slow burn for me. This song when I when I first got into Aladdin Sane, I was kind of craving the the rock and roll stuff. I was cra- like, I, I know some of the non rock songs on this one caught my attention too, 
maybe it was the tempo or maybe it was just that I liked the songs a little bit more. But this was a slow burn for me. Uh, but I, I started to really get into it as I got into jazz uh, music, which I went on a huge jazz discovery uh, mission in, oh, it would have been, I'd say about four or five years ago. I, I just, yeah. And I think actually in hindsight, this may have been my gateway to jazz music. This song, it just kind of, it was the, it's the solo at the end or towards the end that Mike Garson's piano solo that was like, Oh, this, this is different. This is cool. This is jazz possibly like at its best. Like, I don't know. It's, it's, and it's on a Bowie record, which is just so cool. Well, yeah, that piano solo is like the highlight of, I mean, pretty much this album, right? If not this song, or it's a top three moment for me on the, there's one other moment on this album that I'll get to, which is probably my favorite moment in music ever. But yeah, this, this is up there. Well, it's pretty crazy too, because as we've mentioned, I mean, Garson had just met Bowie only very recently. And I guess how this came about was Bowie asked him to, to solo for the track. And I guess the, the first couple of cracks that it didn't work because Garson at first, he tried like a, a bluesy thing and then like a, a Latin thing. And Bowie said, no, that's, I, I want you to just go free for all. Like, do, do one of those event, uh, avant-garde uh, jazz things because that's why he loved Garson so much, right? He wasn't some typical rock piano player. He could create n- new and unique sounds. So Bowie extracted that from him right off the bat and got him to just go from like zero to a hundred. Yeah. And yeah, it's <laughs> done in one take too. Like that's just, I'm pretty sure that was just, yeah, it was the third crack at it, but it was done. The first crack at this style. It, right, and that he, was it. He was just trying to fit in at first. Like, okay, I'm new here. I'll just do a simple blues thing. Bowie's like, no, that's not why I have you here. I have you here to do your thing, <laughs> yeah. and this is his thing. And uh, my favorite part of it is the little tequila. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, it gives it a layer of cheekiness, right? Yeah, it, absolutely. It, like, it, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's humorous, right? Yeah. Like, and, and for all intents and purposes, this is a song and, and like an album about like your sanity slipping away, but they were still able to, through all the madness, incorporate and, and have a, a sense of humor about it. I mean, a dark one, but the, the comic relief is there. Yeah. So he was reading, he, he read a book. I, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, it was that was the author i can't remember the name of the book uh but he wrote he was reading uh evelyn waugh yeah yeah vile bodies vile bodies yeah. that's it he, he pretty much copies like the lyrics like in the, in the verse are kind of like copied from that story it was like a, I guess vile bodies was some sort of a satire of all the rich bright young things partying in london after world war one kind of just frolicking about as if everything's all hunky-dory but then they they were plunged into a, a horrendous holocaust and were totally out of place because all they could think about was partying and drinking and having a great time, as rich people do. Bowie was quoted as saying, somehow it seemed to me that they were like people today. So I, I guess that parenthesis in the title with the 1970 question mark, that's sort of his way of saying, like, like you idiots, like you have no idea what's about to hit you. There's right. a third world war looming and you're all oblivious and incapable of existing in the real world where stuff like this is, is taking place. Great sequencing, too, coming after a song about a party. It just kind of, exactly, yeah, yeah, genius once again. 
Um, I, I read it, you know, there was a great little passage in uh, Chris O'Leary's book, uh, Rebel Rebel, about this song. He was, he says that Bowie was predicting that the world was going to end before 1980. And what he says after that is what really kind of makes it, it's significant. He, he says, you know, after the world didn't end in 1980, his work was never quite the same. And say what you will about his post Scary Monsters career. I mean, I, when we get to those albums, I, I'm going to gush over a lot of it. And I think a lot of it is absolutely top notch music material. But I think the strength of Bowie's uh, of Bowie's catalog comes pre 1980. Yeah, and the I guess it's just like when the end of the world is your muse. What I, this idea of the world ending is sort of akin to some of the songs we've already dove into, right? Like five years is about the end of the world. Oh, you pretty things isn't necessarily about the world ending, but about the old guard dying. I mean, yeah. Doomsday is kind of very present in in, all, in a lot of these records. Yeah, everything. Like even going back to Space Oddity and you know songs on that one. Yeah, yeah. Something uh, that I I never really noticed until really really listening. Uh, closely for for was is Ronson's playing on this I, I, I mean Garson definitely dominates this track yeah um but Ronson's playing on this too if you ever just sit and listen to the from start to finish and focus in on Ronson he just play it's so tasteful everything that he does on it and it just at you know Bowie found his he, he just he just he's I think assembled this is the spiders. Like this is the best that they can be now that Garson's in. I mean, not to discredit Rick Wakeman or what, what Ronson did on, on piano, but yeah, it's just finally this, you know, this is the best incarnation of Bowie in a rock band. It's a lot better than tin machine, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I even like, uh, like the bass line in this song. I love too. And like during that solo, it's the bass line, is almost as important to me as like the piano playing because the the bass line paired with the piano, it's a very interesting dichotomy because the, the bass line sort of sucks me into a trance. It's just going, it's mm-hmm. simple. It's just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I do think there's a simple beauty to how simple that bass line is and how simple really the rest of the backing band is during that solo because it creates, like I said, this dichotomy with Garson's solo, a simple yet entrancing bass line paired with a sort of noisy and off-the-wall avant-garde piano solo. It just, uh, it, they complement each other so well. And I mean, obviously, when this song comes on, you anticipate the piano solo, but like, don't sleep on the, the bass line during it either. Like, I do look forward to the whole thing. Yeah. And I mean, the piano solo is obviously uh, the best part of a song. It practically is the song for me, but uh, the verses are cool enough, but I mean, it's the piano solo on this one that you, at least for me, I just, I anticipate it. Even even yeah. like, you know, like, it's just, you're just always kind of like, okay, like you're waiting for it the entire time. It's kind of like that Simpsons episode where BTO were playing at some festival and, uh, Homer yells at them to play taking care of business. And then when they get, the band gets into it from the start, he yells and get to the working overtime yeah. part. Yeah. It's like that for me here too. It's just, it's uh get to the piano solo. It's kind of, yeah. uh, but I mean, I wouldn't get rid of the verses. Of course. No. I mean, they're I, needed for, 
anticipatory reasons. Right. That's kind of how I treat the first minute and a half or whatever it is. It's just a, an anticipation period, a calm before the storm, and it needs to be there for the solo to be special. Yeah, if you put a gun to my head, sing a line from one of the verses of this song, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, that Yeah, that bass line during the solo and, you know, throughout the song kind of, it, it has like a clock is ticking type of feel. Like, I get kind of anxious, but that's how you're supposed to feel when you it feels listen like to the this. Grim Reapers looming yeah. throughout this whole album. Time yeah. and fate are sort of mocking you. Yeah. And that's that humor kind of, like I said, that dark humor yeah. kind of getting thrown in here. Something that I love about doing this show is that it's forcing me to think about all of these songs a lot harder. And one thing I'm finding is that maybe one of the main reasons Bowie is one of my favorite artists of all time is because of this wide array of emotions a single song of his is able to produce. Uh, and that's becoming like a recurring theme. I believe both of us had mentioned that several times on the last episode when we covered tracks like uh, Rock and Roll Suicide in five years. Usually a track leans heavily in favor of one direction and that yeah. direction only. Like, you know, a dance song will make you want to dance. A sad song will make you want to cry. Happy songs make you happy and so on and so forth. But a lot of these songs are more of a roller coaster. There's not really a single mood or idea to hone in on. Right, yeah. Well, and like each song can be, yeah, ripped apart <laughs> in two in totally different ways where you don't, you don't know how somebody else might react to a song until they tell you because there's no way to predict it. it yeah. It, yeah. There's so many interpretations. Like Life on Mars was the perfect uh, oh, example totally. of that. And then you get like different live versions. Speaking of Garson, uh, when, when Bowie and Garson would do that in the late nineties and early two thousands together, it creates a totally different song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the, yeah, that's the beauty of, I guess, reinventing songs from the past and doing them live and changing the arrangements and stuff, especially with a Bowie track as, as cryptic as that one. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of reinventing, I mean, the, the two emotions I get on, on this song are like scary and funny, I, I guess. And maybe tequila has something to do with that. Well, the, te- and then not, also not the, the drink, the, the song. Yeah. Well, and then also the, the on Broadway outro, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of offbeat the way he delivered. He's he's singing the 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 song on Broadway at the end. It just adds another layer of, of avant garde. The way that it's kind of off rhythm and off kilter, and once again in an odd way, it's kind of humorous. Uh, yeah, it's like that sarcastic tongue and tongue and cheek bit. So I love how this track is so dark and haunted. Yet they kind of keep this great deal of humor attached to it. And like I said, that's kind of. One of the main reasons I find that maybe I love Bowie so much is because he's able to produce, to, to extract such a, a wide range of emotions. Yeah, absolutely. All right, on to the third track, Drive In Saturday. Um, this one's got Seattle to Phoenix next to it. So he, uh, yeah, this was from a, I think, was it a car ride or a bus ride maybe from Seattle to Phoenix? Anyway, yeah, alternate... Uh, means of travel because planes are out of the question so i think have it like slowing down and doing that and and finding alternate ways probably led to a lot of influence on on the songwriting you know it gives you time to think it gives you time to observe america yeah i, I think of the the cracked actor documentary where they're just driving through the desert and it's like yeah he's got time to think a little bit and time to maybe indulge in some other things but what well, he when he has time on his hands, he like it. He has these crazy stories that yeah. he writes about, right? I mean, this one is about what's it about? It's about uh, 
I guess it's a post nuclear war song where I guess like the radiation has crippled everyone's minds and their reproductive organs so that they're unable to procreate and in order to get their sex life back they need to like reteach themselves by watching films and by watching Mick Jagger it's, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's yeah oh Jagger's on the mind yeah. a lot on this album it's kind of neat too because I guess like Aladdin saying that the song tackled the idea of mass destruction like World War Three. it's in the title so it's kind of neat that he follows that up with the aftermath of what that might look like. Uh, you know, Driving Saturday being this imagination of the world after a nuclear catastrophe. And I think that's where Bowie really shines as a songwriter. So like in the 1960s, we had a lot of, I don't know if like shallow is the, the right word, but a lot of basic or just like kind of generic anti-nuclear war songs where the point of the song was like, Nukes equals people dying, and people dying equals bad. You know, like Eve right, of Destruction yeah. yep. by Barry Maguire. Uh, I Come and Stand at Every Door by the Birds just at the top of my head. I mean, good songs with good sentiments, but all sort of very surface level and not particularly imaginative and not particularly imaginative. Where Bowie really shines as a lyricist and like as a conceptualist is how he takes the idea of nuclear catastrophe, but... He doesn't use it to make some sort of political statement. He uses it to create a science fiction tale. Right, He's yeah. less concerned with the yeah. idea of how horrible and frightening it is and instead uses it as like this, I guess, this gateway to, to paint a, a, a sort of a wacky story, a sci-fi kind of thing. It becomes like a launch pad for a dystopian novel yes. as opposed to uh, like Buffalo Springfield saying, you know, stop right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, he, makes... he just, he always took things up a notch as a writer he was never really an activist you know he never took stances or anything for socio-political causes i mean even on ziggy we talked at length about how liberating that record was but he wasn't actively trying to like make a, a like a radical statement you know yeah. he was just writing and performing he's an actor he's playing roles and the stories and roles were radical and because of that he did break barriers down for a lot of people but he was always doing it for the sake of the art, I think, first and foremost. Yeah, and and to, I mean, he, I can't remember the exact song, but he he does talk about like don't take what I have to say, for it's on uh, after all, that's what it's on. Yeah, it's it's like the last verse there. Yeah, yeah. so my opinion doesn't matter anyway. So like, who am I to to, to speak on any issue? Is what he's kind of saying is like you know we're we're all individuals, and what I have to say just because I'm writing music doesn't mean that it's it's going to make like people should take it as gospel or anything. Yeah. So he does what he does best. And it's just like his, his job quite literally is to make music. So yeah, he's using it for a productive way instead of just a preachy kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This it, is another one that has a really long outro. We were talking about, I, I mentioned that it's so this song is four minutes and 30 seconds approximately. It, does it need to be four minutes and 30 seconds? The last little bit just really kind of drags on. I don't know. I, so it, it is kind of like a doo-wop song. Uh, you know, it's that, it's it's glam, uh, you know, defined kind of. You know, it's, it's a 50s song with lipstick. But I think the beauty of, of those old rock and roll songs, maybe not the beauty, but what makes them kind of passable is they're over in two and a half minutes. This one, I find that towards the end of it, as the outro is just kind of going on and on, I'm kind of like, okay, it could it could end now, anytime, and I wouldn't be upset. 
minor gripe anyway on some of the songs on this album i would never have guessed that this song was four and a half minutes so maybe but i also don't think that it drag i don't remember it really dragging at least for me it, it is a longer outro i guess but I, I do like the song a lot so i guess it doesn't really bother me that, that it, it gets extended a little bit longer maybe yeah no i, I don't mind that this like it doesn't really affect it too much for me uh but yeah Maybe that's why it's sort of become a forgotten hit in Bowie's catalog. It's kind of funny how this has become a forgotten hit because it, it peaked at number three. Wow, yeah. During the Ziggy tour, but it's it's never been on like any greatest hits compilation. Yeah, that's like, that is weird. It's got a great uh, video too. Like there's a performance. Is it yeah. Top of the Pops? Maybe I can't remember. I, yeah, I think it yeah, is. Yeah, and it's he, yeah. He looks really cool on it. This is where he really. This is like, this is his coolest look in, of this era. I think is on that particular video he's just you know his his eyebrows are gone say, at this point. the eyebrows yeah. are off now yeah um yeah this one was offered to mop the hoople uh they rejected it they held out maybe and said we want a better one or i don't know if they rejected it before or after all the young dudes but they rejected it anyway um what are the what whoever's singing backing vocals i'm assuming maybe ronson or maybe it's bowie too what do they say at the beginning of this song they're kind of like uh uh like what the heck do they say I kind of, the only time I remember backing vocals saying it, it's just kind of like doo-wop. Like, they're not saying words, they're just kind of making noise. Maybe that's what it is. It their, sounds yeah. like they're trying to say something, but... Well, what's, what's interesting about this record uh, is that it is one of the first ones to, I can't remember if it's on this song or not, but they've got those soul singers, the two female... Backing vocals, yeah. which is that's another very Rolling Stones thing. That's yes. what they were doing all over Exile and Main Street. So, usually Bowie's just doing the backing vocals himself uh, yeah. on the last few records, but he he has he's bringing in or outside and, singers and now. Too, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're very present on the next song, uh, if we may segue to that. Uh, Panic in Detroit. It kind of reminds me of Dark Side of the Moon. I, I can't remember what song it is. I, I'm not into Dark Side of the Moon. Female backing vocals, lots of reverb. It just, it reminds me of that. Uh, and kind of like you said, the Stones too. Uh, I guess Gimme Shelter is one that has really, really good backing vocals. That whole like late 60s, early 70s yeah. period for the Stones. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about Panic in Detroit. If, did I mention it? I may, may not have. Um, yeah. So this is a Bo Diddley uh, kind of ripoff. I know Woody wasn't very happy about that. They, they asked him to play a certain drum beat or something and he, he refused so they had to get yeah. somebody else or i don't know well they they got him into a they got into a bit of a tiff over it yeah right? like he wanted like apparently woody said he he was going to go john bonham all over this but bowie wanted him to keep it simple now that is interesting because i wonder what that, that would have sounded, sounded like because like, yeah. this song is kind of missing a heavy percussion section i because it's a heavy riff very yeah. heavy riff and, and like there's there's congas here which i love and they they're very present, but they're not particularly like a heavy medium of percussion. No. Like a bass drum and a snare and Tom fills and that are, are a bit punchier. Now, I'm not trying to say that Bowie didn't have the right idea for this song. I'm sure it turned out just fine, but he also was a notoriously fast worker. And this album has been said to have maybe been a bit rushed. So 
maybe we, we could have given that a, a test trial and see how that, I, I would I'd be inter- like I'd, I'd still love the song a lot but like I'm have interested. a go at it let's see how it sounds maybe I, I wonder yeah. how it would I'm kind of I wish we had two versions to play back to back yeah well and he revisited it uh scary monsters era too so maybe he was thinking oh maybe we missed something I, you know what I don't know if I've ever listened to that version the rework oh yeah I've got some homework to do. Played it years ago. I just never thought to. It's one of those things where it's like, ah, I like the original better, and I just never got got a background to playing it again. Those congas have some modulation on them too. There's like a phaser effect in some of the some of the spots. That that that's cool in its own, just on its own. Phased congas. Okay. Yeah. Well, if I had to sum up like what the main difference between this record and the last one is, it's that. But it kind of pertains to something you had mentioned lots on the last episode, and that. The musicians and Ronson in particular would give the other musicians more space when needed. Uh, on the Ziggy album, he would do that. You know, there's not a lot of fighting to be front and center. But this album is more aggressive, though, and a bit darker and a lot more violent. You know, this song's about the Detroit riots and that, yeah. right? So the instruments are all a bit louder and simultaneously, like, kind of louder with each other and I don't know about you but like on this track I almost find the lead guitar and the congas to almost be fighting to dominate the rhythm a little bit I I, uh, I, I think the guitar wins for me like or at least like it, it wins my attention that is especially when he follows the vocal you know in the in the verses like the looked a lot like Shake Guevara parts you know how he descends with it yeah this song might be missing a little bit of something. Like, are you looking for more when this song comes on? I, I kind of am. Maybe it's um, the se- maybe it's sequencing. I don't know. Maybe I'm kind of looking after Aladdin Sane's a down kind of song. And then there's a little, there isn't tons of energy on Driving Saturday. And this one doesn't really get you up either. Like I said, maybe if the drums were a bit louder or something, um, uh, yeah, maybe that would have worked out better, but I, I still think that the, the the final product what was very good. Now I do love the congas. I mean, like they add yeah. like uh, what I love about them is that they add like a bit of a lag to the rhythm. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and like Aladdin yeah. saying the they title, tr- yeah, and like the title track too was also a bit off kilter with all the wild flourishes Garson added. So I I get what you're saying, but I also think that what I love about this album is how it's like. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of like his proto art rock album. Like he's kind of getting comfortable with making uncomfortable yeah, music, right? It. That's a great way to put it. So yeah. like for now, he's just blending these sort of wild ideas with rock. But pretty soon, he will be making music that has like literally zero rock attributes. So yeah, he's gonna jump in later as we're right now. He's dipping, testing his, the waters yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. The subject of the song, uh, it's like a, I don't know, it's like some down and out kind of figure who maybe was once famous or what, a politician or something. I don't know exactly uh, who the who the subject is, but does he kill himself at the end? He's slouched over his desk and Bo, he finds yeah. a gun or something. I don't know. Like it, it, yeah, it would be because he's the only Bowie's the only person in the room. With, or I don't even know if Bowie's the narrator. Because, I don't know. Because yeah. Bowie's famous now, but in this song, he's asking this uh, Che Guevara type guy, like he's asking him for his autograph, right? Yeah. Like it's kind yeah. of... And, and that's another one of those recurring themes in Bowie's career, right? Fame and, and you know, yeah. that that pops up a lot. Yeah, it, it is. This one is a bit more of a puzzle yeah. uh, to put together. I mean, for me, at least, like, 
this is where the Ziggy goes to America idea like really starts to take flight because it's it's referencing you know violence and riots and all that like on the last record Bowie seemed to maybe be fantasizing about urban decay but by the time we get to Aladdin Sane and he's visited these really rough places like some of the areas in Detroit that fantasy turns into like more of a reality for him. Yeah. I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I do know Bowie said something along the lines of like, has, has Kubrick ever seen Detroit? Because it makes his clockwork orange look pansy. Or he yeah. said something like that. So. And I think uh, Iggy Pop also, I think gave him like a, you know, the three one one on. The, yeah. He, I, I guess that maybe people wouldn't understand the three one three. That's a Winnipeg thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah three, the uh, gave him the scoop on uh, Detroit. Because he was starting to hang out with him, and you know he produced Raw Power and and all that. So, well, yeah, because Iggy told him about those those riots. I think Iggy had yeah known in '67. Pe- yeah, yeah. Th- there were like civil rights riots uh, in Detroit. I think he maybe told him that while they were all at uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel, which leads to uh, the next song. I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, no, that's unless you have more to say. Well, the only thing I wanted to add is that uh, once again, just to, to give you an example of why Bowie is just different from other songwriters, is that Gordon Lightfoot also has Black Day in July, which is sort of a, just another one of those typical yeah. retellings. And, and, and once again, Bowie here is kind of put together more of like a science fiction puzzle almost. So yeah. just another example of him sort of just going places that, other songwriters just hadn't really gone before. Yeah, in Black Day in July, uh, the narrator doesn't freak out and go to a, a casino and win trillions of dollars. <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> like, that's pretty funny. <laughs> All right, so uh, the last song on side A of Aladdin Sane is Cracked Actor. Uh, this one is a, lo- a story of Los Angeles, or... Of Hollywood, I guess. Uh, song about an over-the-hill actor who is, I guess, being used for what somebody thinks is is a, a drug connection, mm-hmm. but uh, it turns out that's a dead end. He's made a bad connection because he just wants uh, he just wants sex. That's it. Uh, yeah. So this one, I think, was inspired by it, or I don't know if it was inspired by this stay at the Beverly hills or not but he he spent some time um at the uh the famous beverly hills hotel uh for i think it was a few days or maybe even over a week or something and apparently they racked up some crazy bill staying there there was like his whole entourage of like 40 people were there iggy mm. pop was there they're eating lobster for breakfast and yeah lunch and all. yeah so yeah, all the hanger-ons <laughs> were doing it too they they did hollywood right essentially mm-hmm. uh so he, he was kind of figuring out what L.A. was all about. And, yeah, it comes out in this one, uh, a a fine rock and roll song. Yeah, his his mind is still very much occupied with the idea of, like, the fall of a star. Right? Yes. Because on yeah. Rock and Roll Suicide, it was Ziggy himself. And now I guess it's, like, this unnamed actor who's obviously past his prime and is now basically only good for his money. So it, it's similar conceptually to some of the themes on the last record, but... Keeping in line with the identity of this new record with Aladdin Sane, Cracked Actor is more chaotic, right? It's louder and it's much uh, like dirtier than Rock and Roll Suicide. Yeah. You know, this track is just filled with blatant sexual and, and drug innuendo. I think at its core, this record could probably 
be summed up as like being about sex, drugs, party, and end rock and roll. And so Cracked Actor is maybe even like the, the most central song on this record. Yeah, like that the, makes the, sense. The best representation of like what Aladdin Sane is, is trying to accomplish. And it sits nicely, you know, at the end of side A to kind of, it, it's a very central track, uh, literally. So yeah. yeah, and figuratively as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's heavy. Like it is like, this is a, this is like a, a hard rock and roll song. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like even, you know, I would say it's heavier than Suffragette City, even like, which is a very or hang on to yourself. Watch that man. Something about it. Maybe it's the mix that get, has a bit more punch to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's Bronson. Uh, the feedback on that guitar. Oh is man, just... it just yeah, it it kicks ass. So our the intro of our podcast is uh, we we spent like a couple of hours in a studio uh, a few years ago, and it was it was thrown together really quickly. I was like, Oh, what are we going to record? We have studio time. And we were like, let's just do a Ziggy medley or a Bowie it, medley. It was for your stag party, right? Yeah. The best man had arranged us to go to the studio in the afternoon to record. And it was like, okay, surprise, you're going to the studio. And it was like, we have 20 minutes to rehearse. What are we going to do? And we kind of threw in a medley. And th- this was one of them. And just a song that I guess we were, we were both comfortable with playing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of our favorites, um, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm sure it's one of yours too. Oh yeah. Uh, so I have this. I, I something I like in in art is stuff about Hollywood. I'm I'm very fascinated by Hollywood. Uh, there's many different examples of this that I've I really like. It's it's kind of like like I like when Hollywood depicts Hollywood. If that makes sense, it's a story coming from straight from, you know, the horse's mouth, but yeah. it's, it's, it's like an interpretation. Like I, I really like uh sunset Boulevard, the old film noir, uh, movie, uh, Ed Wood, uh, the, the Johnny Depp, uh, he plays Ed Wood, the, you know, the kind of out of left field <laughs> director. Uh, another, a book that I really like is uh, graveyard for lunatics by Ray, Ray Bradbury. Uh, I, I, I just love that setting or like once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, Tarantino's kind of love letter to LA. Love that movie. And this just kind of fits into that. Like this is kind of like the music version of, of that for me. So if I'm, if I want to read, I'll read Bradbury. If I want to read, uh, watch a movie, I'll watch those. But this is like, I can get that fix in, you know, the three audio minutes representation. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is probably my favorite straight rock and roll uh, Bowie song. And I say that a lot, that, oh, this is one of my favorites of this. But that's kind of how I talk about Bowie. It's, maybe it's recency bias. Maybe it's just the mood I'm in. But I, I know it, it, I have so many different answers where it's, and, and this is, this is my answer right now anyway. Well, I guess we would have to sit down. I mean, well, what are the straightforward rockers? There's Suffragette City. Yeah. There's this one, Cracked Actor. There's Watch That Man. There's Gene Genie. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, and then you, if you go a bit late, like you can, you know, you can go later into his career, like, uh, I don't know, like Scary Monsters or Beauty and the Beast sure, or yeah. something. Yeah. Star and Hang On Yourself from the last record. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I would have to sit down and really think about that. I think a lot of them are in, in like a, a one-way tie for first, like a lot of the yeah. songs, because it, it is kind of hard to to pick your favorite. But th- this is a, as good a choice as any of those. If you had to pick one, sure. Like, yeah. This one is. This one's may, maybe the fact that this one is kind of like the loudest and the raunchiest and the dirtiest. Maybe that's kind of what maybe separates it from the pack. And maybe maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. it's my number one too. I don't know, but it's a it's a good choice. It might be his vocal for me too. 
It's something about it. It's like it, it sounds like he's excited to be doing this song. He's got a lot of energy in it. He's delivering each line with like emphasis, like on everything. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's almost like and, and maybe this isn't his voice kind of changed on this album a little bit. Um, it's a bit more British sounding maybe on some of not this one in particular, not this song. But I, I, I kind of notice his voice changes a little bit on this album. It's softer or something when it, in the in the softer parts and it's got a bit more maybe oomph in the heavier songs. And maybe he's just like you said, he's maybe a bit more comfortable. I think it's definitely a different voice on what well, we won't talk about on this episode on time. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just like, it's just totally yeah. different things. So yeah, I, I, I can see that. I mean, by all accounts, this was one of those songs where the, the energy in the studio, even when they were doing it was just through the roof because they, they, they tried doing like a regular harmonica sound on this track. Right. But it, it wound up just sounding kind of generic and bluesy, which isn't what they wanted, but they still wanted their harmonica because it fits so well. So, uh, so Ken Scott, the, the producer, once again, he's back again. I can't remember if we mentioned that or not. Did something brilliant. Yeah, he suggested they play it through well, what was Ronson's amp. It was a 200-watt Marshall or whatever. Yeah. So they, they play the the harmonica on this song is even played through that amp. It just it gives it that grit, right? And, yeah. And, and to make it sound more appropriate and in line with the rest of the instruments. And it, it works so well. And, like, Ken Scott and David Bowie had such a great chemistry and he was really able to to capture the sounds and textures David was, he was after. Thinking about, yeah, exactly. without David even telling him what to do. Like David had the ideas, and, and just like the right people around him to make sure those ideas would come to life. Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say that's that's how he did it. He surrounded himself with people that yeah. understood him. Yeah, or that he maybe just understood what sounded good too. Like I mean, obviously, there's the job of figuring out what's going on in Bowie's head. But it's also the onus is also on the the producer and on each musician to to know like how to do it and and what sounds good, because I, I've I've heard I can't remember who said it, but Bowie was very encouraging when he said no to people. He would mm-hmm. walk by and when they're trying something, he'd be like, "No, you'll find it." Like in other words, like, "Oh, this isn't it. Like, I better figure something else." Yeah. So it might have been Earl Slick that said it or somebody. Anyway, I just think that's really interesting that he had he. You know, he'd, he'd get his his person, and he'd put faith in them that they would they would do the job. Mm-hmm. And it's it's yeah, it's it's putting a lot of trust in your collaborators, uh, but it's also I think it's an art form to pick the people that can do it. Well, it was like the only time I think they ever really got into a or that David got into a boat with anybody was on the last song, Panic in Detroit, and it was with Woody. And it, yeah. maybe that's why he wound up being the first guy to. And the last to know to make an exit, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, well, we'll get to, maybe on the next episode we'll we'll touch on uh, Bowie w- wasn't maybe fair to to Woody at the end of things, but well, yeah, and uh, he maybe wasn't fair to. I don't know how much of this carried over, but I mean they weren't getting paid fairly. Garson was brought on and was making like three times as much as. Uh, as Woody was and probably Trevor too. Yeah. I'd imagine uh, Ronson was getting uh, a little bit more just based on his role. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's the, the story that I think Garson told it or no, maybe it was Woody about anyway. They both, they both told it over the yeah, years. Woody yeah. was looking at a car or something in a magazine and said, Oh, it'd be nice to have one of those. And Garson said, well, what do you mean? Like, it'd be nice. Like, don't you have two already? And yeah. I can't afford that. And Garson said, you know, 
uh, here's what I make, and it, it was it was a lot more. And that's yeah. yeah. I, I I get the feeling maybe that Bowie just didn't want to deal with all that, and maybe it was DeFreeze, yeah. Because well, what was the final straw? For- uh, by Woody's account was he went up to DeFreeze and was like, what the fuck, man? Like, this guy's new and he's making... Thr- yeah. I've even heard it was up to, like, ten times more. I'm sure that's exaggerated, but DeFreeze famously said, I'd rather pay the road managers more than you. Yeah, that's... It- yeah. Oh. That's just... Bye. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I-, I think, you know, the buck stops at Bowie, though. He he could have maybe yeah. done something and instead he- of just... He has like- the ability to override Exactly, DeFries. yeah. He-, he is David Bowie. Yeah. You know. But DeFreeze did have a bit of an ego. I mean, like, I think DeFreeze's company was named Main Man, right? Yeah. I've read that Bowie assumed at first that that was, he was Main Man. <laughs> no, it, it was it, it was Tony. It was, yeah. DeFreeze was Main Man. <laughs> Make no mistake about it. Yeah. V- Visconti didn't like DeFreeze, so he, you know, he took off, I guess. Visconti is a good judge ago. of character. Yeah, uh, let's leave it there, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I don't have much else to add on this one. Uh, oh, I do like the the live little act that he did with the the skull i get is that maybe like is he i was always wondering why he did that like, is he singing to the washed up actor that's like dying or is, is he just like is that what the washed up actor is looks like in the mirror like oh yeah. you're old you're too old yeah <laughs> i don't know yeah but it, it's a great and he brought it back too like he doesn't just do it for this tour he brings it back diamond for dogs spider and diamond dogs and well serious moonlight too or maybe it was just yeah serious moonlight yeah yeah, yeah. no it's it's fun uh, yeah, great song to play live. That's for sure. He also, Bowie was wearing some sort of, it was like a cape or something that he had on when he did this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sunglasses. Well, that'll be fun to maybe dive into when we do the, the next episode, or not the next episode, but the next, the episode after next, where right. we kind of talk about the tour. Cause there's a lot of cool, like theatrics and visual aspects too, that we maybe aren't able to tackle on the record because you really only get well, what do you have it on a record? You get a gatefold, a cover, and, and the songs. Right. Uh, Bowie is much more than just record covers and songs. So th- I you know, I encourage you all to, to stick with us for those episodes because I do look forward to us being able to, to touch on that as well. But Yeah, I, I love looking at set lists, too, from tours and seeing what they were playing and seeing what songs, uh, or even just looking up song stats and seeing like, like when how many songs, how many live plays yeah, one has. Especially later in his career, too. Because, I mean, like, obviously this is early in his career. He doesn't have as big of a a, a catalog to, to choose yeah. from. But it is always fascinating to to see, like, oh, what he was doing this on the reality tour. Like, what right. What inspired him to revisit this song in 2003 I that he wrote that in 70? Well, yeah, that's, that yeah. stuff is when it starts to get really, really interesting. And we've been kind of holding back on that because there will be a time and place to, to get to it. Because, I mean, these episodes are getting kind of long <laughs> already. Yeah. So on that note, I think that wraps up side A. We'll be flipping it over, and we'll be back very shortly with side B of Aladdin Sane. Thank you for listening. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. We'll catch you next time. Snow White, New York's a go-go, and everything tastes right. Poor little greenie, 